How's everyone doing? It's great to see you. Blessed that you guys are here. I'm going to introduce Pastor Dave Love. He's the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel, Castle Rock, and we're really blessed to have him bring the word. So, If you've ever preached off of a uh, music stand, it's because you were a youth pastor at one time. My wife asked me before I was about to leave, are you going to shave? I go, it's a men's retreat. They're lucky I showered. What do you mean they're going to shave? Shave, bunch of dudes. I've been given the uh, blessed uh, opportunity to be able to uh, teach on the role of the Holy Spirit in discipleship. And I don't want to leave anybody behind. So I don't know where people are in their walk with the Lord. And so I want to be able to back up and be able to basically teach some just basic understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Because he is a person and he is God. But how do you know that? Hopefully because you can see it in God's word. And so I want to go over a a few things here. I want to be able to go over... Who is the Holy Spirit? Do you have the Holy Spirit? And what is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life? And so those are the things that we're going to kind of go over here tonight. And starting with who is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has many different names in the Word of God. When we go through the Word of God, I've I've located 12 of them. There might even be more, okay? I didn't do an exhaustive search. Maybe you can even think of one other than the ones that I found here. Um, We know the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God. Uh, We know he's called the Spirit of the Father. He's also called the Spirit of Christ. He's called the Spirit of the Lord. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He's called the Spirit of Grace. Praise God for that one. He's called the Eternal Spirit. He's called the Comforter or Helper. He's called the Spirit of Promise. He's called the Spirit of Holiness, the Spirit of Life. He is the Holy Spirit, and some of you King James advocates, he's the Holy Ghost. I love that one, the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity of God. If you've never heard of the Trinity of God before, it is one God, three persons. Explain that to your kid. Explain that to just about anyone. I've had people come up to me before and said, can you explain the Trinity? I said, I don't know if I can explain the Trinity, but I can prove the Trinity by the word of God. And that's really what it comes down to. Anytime I teach on anything, anytime I hear someone teach, I always bring it back and I never ask the question, does that make sense? What I ask is the question, does that make scripture? And if it makes scripture, I'm sorry, that's, for me, that's good enough. That's good enough. Because I know that the word of God is the word of God, and that's a different topic altogether. But I've come to the place of knowing who Jesus is. I've come to the place where I've received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've come to the place and understand this, that every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. And it's my hope and desire that after this weekend, and there's other people that are going to be 
talk about what discipleship's all about and what uh, a discipleship program looks like and are you in a discipleship, uh, my hope and desire is that every single one of you, if you're not being discipled, will be part of some sort of discipleship program before this weekend ends. Because I'm here to tell you something. Without discipleship, you can't grow. And it's through discipleship that you really get founded and grounded in the Word of God to where you can grow and begin to use what it is that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. And so I want to talk briefly here about the Holy Spirit. And He is the third person in the Trinity. Uh, Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We do see that in the Word of God. One God in three distinct persons. God reveals this mystery from the very, very beginning. If you just go to Genesis 1.1, we're going to be bouncing around a lot. And this is good for any, some, anyone that needs to be discipled because you've got to know where the different books of the Bible are. And so I'm not even going to tell you where Genesis 1.1 is. You're going to have to figure that one out. I might help you with some of the others, but Genesis, in the beginning... Book of Beginnings, Book of Origins, the very first book. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I've, I've heard someone say this before a long time ago, and I've always held on to it. I just look at that, and, he, and I remember this guy telling me one time, he says, if you can believe that, then is the rest of the word of God really difficult? If you can come to the place where you believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth then all the other wild and wacky stuff that you see God did, is it really a problem? He created the heavens and the earth. I don't know if he's ever going to, you know, change my, my wife. <laughs> create the heavens and the earth, man. I don't know. It's not, it's not a problem if you ask me. The word God there is a Greek word. It's Elohim. It's a plural form of the singular God try and comprehend that but from the very beginning we're being told here there is more to this god than than we probably understand it's interesting to me because the greek or the hebrew word here for elohim is a plural form because a single form is just the word el in the hebrew just the word el it's interesting to me that he uses the plural form here. If you just go down to verse 26 here, it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. What on earth? Is there a mouse in his pocket? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. What I find very interesting is that the Hebrew language validates the trinity of God. That should blow your mind. I want you to go over here to Deuteronomy. Fifth book. That helps you out there. Go to chapter 6. This is known as the Shema. If you're not familiar with the Shema, the Shema is the um, Hebrew way of, of, uh, of always uh, just announcing who God is. The word Shema is the word here, meaning hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. And he goes on, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the classic Hebrew 
confession of faith. As a matter of fact, they will say this over and over and over again, quite often in their synagogues. And the reason they will say it over and over and over again is really to emphasize and to declare that it's not the Christian God that believes in the Trinity. That's why they say it over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. And they will say it over and over and over again. The interesting thing is that the word one there is a word in the Hebrew that is ikad, which means a plural unity. Isn't that fascinating? A plural unity. As a matter of fact, we see this in Genesis uh, chapter 2 when it comes to Adam and Eve, and the two shall become what? One, ikad. Ikad. In Exodus, we're told in Exodus 26, 6, and the 50 gold clasps that you use to hold the curtains together so the tent will be one, ikad. 50 making one. Same word, akkad. Now, if it is the one and only singular one, there's another word that could be used, and the word is yakid. Not ikad, it's yakid. Abraham, I want you to take your son, your yakid, only son. And here's what's interesting about that. Is Isaac his only son? There's another guy by the name of Ishmael and that whole Hagar thing. We're not even going to that. But God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Yaquid, your only, your one and only. How can you say that, Lord? Because he's the one and only of the promise. So there, there's words that are used, and those are important. And God uses these words to let you know from the very beginning, yes, one God, plurality, and it is expressed through three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to me if you just shoot over here to Matthew chapter 28. It's just a, a brief little teaching on the Trinity of God, and, and there's way more. I have a whole lengthy topic on that. Because if you don't believe in this Trinity, you know something? You can't be saved. You know that? You have to believe that Jesus is God to be saved, don't you? Unless you believe that I am, you are dead in your sins, Jesus said. You have to believe that he is the I am. The Trinity is very, very important. So here in chapter 28, look what it says here. He says in verse 18, Jesus came, spoke to them. This is after the resurrection. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the names. Do you have plurals there? I have in the name. And when you look it up, it's singular. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, one God, distinct people in that Godhead. Another way to figure out the deity of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus, not Jesus, when Moses was before uh, God at the burning bush. You might remember that in Exodus chapter 3. He's about to go. He's been given, you know, his commission. You're going to go. You're going to be the redeemer of, of Israel. You're going to go to Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. Uh, you're going to go to my people, say that you are the redeemer that I've raised up. And he says, okay, I'm going. And before he leaves, he goes, wait, 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 wait. Who do I say 
is sending me again? And what is it that God says? Tell him, I am sent you. I am is a very interesting word. It's, it's the Hebrew form of the verb to be. It means I was, I am, I will always be. It speaks of the eternality of God, which shows that he is God because only God can always be before anything was created, has always been, is now, and will always be. Only God fits that criteria. And it speaks of the eternality of God. Tell him, I am sent you. Okay? And so he does. There are certain attributes and qualities of God. For one, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Okay? Um, God is also uh, omniscient. He knows everything. Okay? He's also omnipotent, all-powerful. So, when all those attributes are given to someone, then they're also God. I don't know any human being, I don't know any other created thing that has those attributes. Only God does. Only he can be everywhere. Only he can know everything. Only he can be all-powerful. And yet we see in Psalm 137 that we're told the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere. We're told in 1 Corinthians 2 that the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He's all-knowing. We're told in Luke 135 that the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And then we're told in Hebrews 9.14 that the Spirit is eternal. How does the Trinity work and how it, it works in harmony? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. He is God. I want you to go to John 14. We're going to take a look at the Holy Spirit here. John 14. Starting in verse 15 there of chapter 14, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray. And the Father, he will give you another helper. Your Bible might say comforter. That he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he, d- he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. How does Jesus come to them if he's going to be leaving them? Through the Holy Spirit. And that only makes sense if the Holy Spirit and Jesus are one. Only makes sense if Jesus and God, Father, are one, and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. And you'll find these things being interchanged all through the Word of God because it's one God in three persons. This is what the Bible teaches. I never have to make sense of anything that the Bible teaches. Now, there are other things that the Bible teaches that I think I can make sense of as well, but there are other things that I'm going, this pea brain finite mind, I, I can't 
explain the infinite. I just can't. But I can teach and prove what the Word of God says. And the Word of God makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So how does Jesus come to us? Through the Holy Spirit. If God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are are together, then this makes sense. And Jesus will be with us through the Holy Spirit. That's how he is with us. This is how it happens. And notice the pronoun he. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force. Okay? He's not a force. He's not an it. He is a person. And he speaks. And so we know this. Now, here's the question that I have. Do you have the Holy Spirit in your life? I want you to go to Acts chapter 19. Very interesting area of scripture. Paul, when he goes to Ephesus. Let's read this here in verse 1 of Acts chapter 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. You would just assume right there these are disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay, well, let's find out because there are many disciples at this time. Disciple just means disciplined learner, one like his master. Okay, so any follower of a rabbi, they'd be his disciples. And so there's a lot of people that be qualified as disciples. So it says in verse 2, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people they should believe on him, they would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And then it goes on and tells you that these disciples, there were 12 of them. He ends up bringing them into uh, Ephesus there and, and then takes them to the school of Tyrannus. And if you ask me, a discipleship was going on there. He took these men to disciple them. Now, when I first look at that, there is something that Paul saw when he was talking with them. There was some language that was the same, but then as he's talking with them, there's something that, if you ask me, he saw was missing there, to which makes him ask further and, and just say, what, what, what kind of disciples are you? How were you baptized? With the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance. Have you heard of the Holy Spirit? We have not heard of the Holy Spirit. It begins to unfold at that point who these disciples are. I believe that they're disciples of John. They went through the baptism of repentance. If you, if you recall what baptism is, baptism is, um, speaks of identification. Okay, Baptism does not save you. Uh, we, we teach at our church all the time when we're about to have a baptism, look, just so you know, baptism doesn't save you. Okay, you're saved through faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Okay, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved, but you do have to be baptized in order to be obedient. Okay, in order to be obedient. Did Jesus not say to be baptized? I just read to you all authorities beginning. You need to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says to be baptized. Did the disciples baptize other people after he was raised from it? Yes, he did. Why are they doing this? For identification. 
because baptism wasn't a Christian thing. Baptism was a Jewish thing. And when someone comes preaching a message, for you to identify with that message, you would be baptized. Saying, I believe in this message that this man is speaking. You would usually come speaking in the name of the Lord. John would come and says, hey, make way the way of the Lord. You need to repent. You're not living right. You're not right with God now for him to come. And by the way, he is coming. And people who heard that message say, you're right. We're not loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul like we're told to. We're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're not doing these. You're right. Our heart isn't right. And the, the, the Messiah is coming. And you have to make your heart right to be able to receive him. And those who believed in John's message got baptized. And so these disciples were believing in that message, but they hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit, which tells us that they haven't heard yet of Jesus Christ. So what do they do? Paul tells them at this point, he says, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means what? It means that they received what Paul said, just like John was saying, a Messiah is going to come. We believe that. Paul introduces them to that Messiah, Jesus. They received that to show they received it. What did they do? They got baptized. They got baptized. But when Paul first met them, there was something missing. There's something missing. And it was the infilling of the Holy Spirit is what was missing there. The infilling of the Holy Spirit. So, I want us to be able to understand there are three relationships that you can have with the Holy Spirit. As we go through God's word, if you go back here to John 14, okay? John 14. What does it say here again in verse 17? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him and he dwells with you. Okay, he dwells, dwells with you and will be in you. There'll come a time when the Holy Spirit will no longer just be with you. He will be in you. Okay. Now, I want you to go over here to John 16. Just pull it over a page. In verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me. Now, I want to tell you something. The Holy Spirit is in this world for that main reason for unbelievers, to convict the world of sin. What sin? Well, they shouldn't be doing drugs. No. What sin? Well, they shouldn't be killing people. Well, you're right, but no. The the Holy Spirit is there specifically for this reason, to convict the world of sin, of sin for not believing in me. The Holy Spirit is with everyone, everywhere around the world, trying to bring them to an understanding of who Jesus is. 
That's what he's doing. That's what he was doing with you and myself before we came to know the Lord. You know all those obnoxious Christians that were in your life? That was the Holy Spirit coming inside of Christ's ambassadors and then being a light and a witness, inviting you to church, even in an obnoxious fashion, telling you stuff like, this is what God did for me. He saved me. And I got to tell you, it was so radical. It's crazy. You got to come, man. Jesus wants you. Give it up, brother, and all this kind of stuff. And every time you're with that wacky relative, that Jesus freak relative, understand that was the Lord. And that's the Lord using him, trying to convince you, trying to come alongside of you, trying to convict you of your sin, of not believing in him. The Holy Spirit is with everyone. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Now, when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, you know what happens? He now dwells inside of you. He now dwells inside of you. Now, when I read here that it says that he dwells with you and will be in you, when does this happen? I would submit to you at the moment that you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to go there, but I'm just going to read these scriptures to you. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21, it says... Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ. And by the way, anytime you read in Christ, that speaks about a believer. Only a believer can be in Christ. Okay. So it says he who established us with you in Christ has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Once you are in Christ, guess what? The Holy Spirit is inside of you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You are now sealed. And the Holy Spirit isn't going anywhere. He is inside of you. In Ephesians 1.12, it says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And in him, Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, believers, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. When did the Holy Spirit come into life? The moment that you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The moment that happened, the spirit has come inside of you. And the moment that happens, now begins the process of one of the roles the Holy Spirit has in your life. And you know what that process is called? It's called sanctification. Sanctification. Now, the third, and we'll get back to that. That's an important one. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to leave you hanging there. All right, we're going we're gonna to show how he sanctifies you and things like that. Okay, here in a moment. But the third relationship, so he's with everybody The moment you receive Jesus, he's inside of you. But there's another experience. There's this epi experience where he comes upon you. That's Acts 1.8. I want you to go to Acts 1.8. Now, in the book of Acts here... In chapter 1, this is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the question that I have for you is at this point, when it says right here in verse 4, and being assembled together 
with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you have heard from me. For, Ju- for, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall ba- be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so this third experience is often called baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's some people who call it the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of, this, of the Holy Spirit. There's all different names for it. I don't care what you name it. I would rather have the right thing with the wrong name than the, the right name with the wrong thing, okay? And, uh, and so I think baptism of the Holy Spirit is a great way of calling it because we see it said that way right here. So he tells them, I want you to wait for the promise, and you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so he goes on, and he says this in verse 7. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word upon, uh, upon there is epe in the Greek, okay, has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth. Now, up until this point, do the disciples have the Holy Spirit in them? The answer is yes, they do. I want you to go, you're going to keep your hand here in Acts, okay? Just flip over here to John 20, the very next page over. On the day that Jesus raised from the dead, he meets with the disciples in, 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 uh, in a room there in the evening time, freaks him out because, you know, doesn't knock. And so it says here in verse 19 of chapter 20, and on the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so this is still uh, the, the day of the resurrection, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled, the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is now some 40 days later when they're supposed to wait for the promise to come. It's on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit does come upon them. But I want you to be able to see here. So you have believers where the Holy Spirit was with them. They now realize that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Christ, that he's raised from the dead. Now because of that, they can receive the Holy Spirit, can now be inside of them. But before they can go off ministering and to be a witness They need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And notice what it says here in verse 8. What's the reason for receiving this power? To become witnesses. Witnesses, testimonies. So you can go out and preach the word with power. Before you can do that, before you can be a witness, you have to be empowered through the Holy Spirit. That word power is dunamis. It means dynamite. It's huge. Okay? You need that. You need that. Nowhere in God's word will you ever find those who are empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit, falling down, barking like dogs, laughing uncontrollably, and just encapsulate it being weird. They might be filled with the Spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. That's not what God has called us. He tells us right there, what's the point? To be a witness a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why you're being empowered. I find it very interesting that before Pentecost, 
Peter, in the flesh, is, is trying to protect Jesus, trying to live for the Lord, and cuts off Malchus's ear, you know. In the flesh, there is no power. But afterwards, he wants to be a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ beforehand, cuts off an ear, denies the Lord multiple times. But then afterwards, when he understands who Jesus is, when he receives Jesus as that Messiah, the Holy Spirit is now inside of him. And then he gets on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, filled with the Holy Spirit is now upon him. What does Peter do? The first one to teach the most blessed sermon probably ever since that time that Jesus was raised from the dead. And 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. That was the beginning of the church. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at the power he has now because he's not doing it in the flesh. He's now doing it in the spirit. And so we are told here this epe, it means overflowing upon. This epe experience empowers you for service, Christian service. You need to have this power in order to serve the Lord, in order to serve at church, to be able to serve throughout the day, to be a light and a witness to people at work, in your family, anybody you come in contact with during the week. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to be upon you in order for this. The Holy Spirit empowering is for to be a witness and to empower you for christian service that is what the holy spirit is for when you are being baptized in the spirit i often use an example that it's kind of like having a glass right here and a pitcher of water right here the pitcher of water is the holy spirit the glass is you this is before you come to know the lord jesus christ okay then you come to know the lord guess what the water now goes inside of you and now your glass is filled that is being infilled. At that point, you are filled. He is in you. But that epe experience, in order for other people to taste that water that's inside of you, you need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's how they see Jesus. That's how they know what is going on in your life. And now that's an overflowing that needs to take place. That's the overflowing that needs to take place. It's interesting to me that in John 7, 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers or torrents of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Living waters, the Holy Spirit flow rivers. It is to be continuous. In John 4, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. A fountain. Can I ask you a question? Is this your life today? Do you see the Holy Spirit overflowing in your life? Do you see him using you to be a light and a witness to other people? Do you see other people saying, I, I, want, I want a drink of water of what you have, man. I don't know what it is, but you seem to have a peace. You seem to be able to handle any storm that comes your way. You don't seem to react like other people in the world react. There's something different about you. That's the Holy Spirit splashing on them. And they want a taste of it. 
Is that your life? Does that describe your life? If not, we're going to give you an opportunity here today to change all that. I want you to go to Acts chapter 4. There are those who will say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time, you know, infilling and you'll be gushing forward ever since. Once you get that infilling, man, it will just constantly just happen. It is continuous and it is continuous. It's going to happen all the time and, okay, and, and it happens by the laying on of hands. I don't necessarily agree with that, but at the same time, I will always lay hands on people. Because we see the Holy Spirit come upon people in many different ways in the book of Acts. In Cornelius' household, it comes upon them before anybody has a chance to lay hands on them and before they're baptized. And then there's other times when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon them once they're baptized. And I believe the reason why there's so many different ways is because God is not going to be put into a box. That could be God calling. You might want to answer that. Strange ways. But I, would, I, would, I want to let you know something here, okay? Here in Acts chapter 4, this is very interesting to me, okay? Pentecost has happened in Acts chapter 2, all right? Where Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, overflowing gives us great sermon, okay? Then if you go over here to Acts chapter 4, Let's read this here for a second. And to give you a little context, in, in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are going to the temple. There's a lame man there. Um, he's asking for money. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to rise up and walk. And so he walks in, and he's healed, and everybody is going nuts, and they see this as an opportunity to do what? Preach the gospel. And so they begin to preach the gospel. People are hearing this, and the priests go by. They hear this. They grab them. They arrest them. They put them in custody overnight. And so the next day, they bring them before the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, and, and the people of the council there. And so here, in verse 1 of chapter 4, that's where we are. And it says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, they laid hands on them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. There's those who believed it's a new 5,000 from the 3,000 before. Some believe now it's just a total of 5,000, whatever. A lot believed. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when you look at that word uh, filled, it is a, it's, a, it's a Greek word that's uh, uh, pamplame. And the word pamplame means not only to be filled, but it also means to be fulfilled and being filled. Meaning that at that moment, he was being filled with the Holy Spirit. But wasn't he already filled? He was. So he goes on. And he ministers them. He preaches them. Now look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You know what? That's the only thing that I care about in life. I want people to see Jesus in me. 
I believe I got the first part down. I believe that when people meet me and they talk with me, they go, wow, he's really uneducated. But I'm hoping that they leave with, but I can tell he spends time with Jesus. That's, That's what I hope. That's what I want more than anything else. And then look what happens there. There's not a whole lot that they can do. And so verse 17, so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on, they speak to that man, uh, no longer speak to that man in, the, in this name, in his name, meaning Jesus. So they leave and they say, well, whether we obey you or not, we'll leave that up to God. And so they go back to their fellowship of believers, this new church. And we're told here in verse um, uh, 29 after he gets together with, with all these other believers, it says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants with all boldness that they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to believe, uh, hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They are already filled. In Acts chapter 2, here they're being filled again. What that tells me is that I could be asking for this at any time, and I do. I just want to let you know that every time before I begin to preach, I always ask, Lord, I pray for the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Give me the boldness to preach your word. Before I go into any counseling situation, okay, Lord, give me wisdom. Through your Holy Spirit, give me the words to say and what not to say. Wherever I go during the day, in my devotion time in the morning, I always pray, okay, Lord, I want you to lead and guide me in your, in your word. And then as I go about my day today, infill me with your Holy Spirit, take away the old Dave, bring upon the new. I do not want to step outside my doors without being filled with your Holy Spirit. Have I? Oh, yeah. How profitable was that day for the Lord? Not at all. Okay. Anytime I try and step out that door and do things on my own, God is gracious, he's merciful, and he'll usually bring to my attention, you know what, you just kind of ran through that devotion. You know what, you just kind of, you didn't really, uh, and you try and find a place to be able to kind of go and just say, Lord, forgive me, and yes, please, infill me right now. Let me be a light and a witness wherever I go. It's a constant asking of the Lord. It's a constant asking of the Lord. Now, I want you to go to Luke chapter 11. Because can I ask you a question? If you were ever to pray the prayer, okay, Lord, I'm I'm about to meet with my parents. My parents don't know that I'm a believer. I ask that you infill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me the right words to say. Do you think the Lord is up there going, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, no, I'm not going to infill you with the Holy Spirit. Not going to let you be a witness. Thanks for asking, though. No, he's, he's not going to do that. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 11, I should go over there. We see this in verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. He who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be open. Now, I would submit to you, because of the context here in Luke, I know it's said again in Matthew. I know it's said, uh, again, I believe it, it's even said in Mark. I could be wrong there. It might just be Matthew. But in the context of Matthew, is different than the context here. I personally believe that, just like many ministers do today, 
um, that when we go somewhere, sometimes Lord will put on my heart to say, teach something that I've taught before. And we always talk about this fresh man. I want fresh man. Well, you know, as you're infused with the Holy Spirit, the fresh man comes that way. But quite often, it requires teaching something that I've already taught before. Okay, well, I think the Lord did the same thing. Okay, he went through, uh, just like John did, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said the same thing over and over again. So here he is saying it, but this time it seems to be in the context of ministry. If you ask, it will be given. If you knock, it will be open. It's interesting if you do a study on knocking in the New Testament, it always speaks of doors of ministry. So, yeah, not all of you knew that. You, you could go, wow, I didn't know that. That's pretty good. Spirit, I don't even have that in my nose. See, the Spirit's moving. It's good. And so he says here, if a son asks for bread from a father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? What kind of father would do that? Some of you think you didn't know my dad. <laughs> All right, but we're, we're talking a, a good, loving father, okay? And we have one. He's called our Heavenly Father. And so he tells us here, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Every time you ask for the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit, God will deliver. Every time you ask to be a light and a witness, God will show you how to do that. Every time you want the empowering of the Holy Spirit to be a witness or to be used for Christian service, such as before you work in Sunday school and before you're an usher or greeter or before wherever God has you in the church, you should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And every time you ask, the answer will be yes. I'm going to empower you to do that. I'm going to empower you to do that. Now, I want to get into just briefly what it is to be a disciple, because I know somebody else is going to that, so I just, I just want to say briefly what a disciple is. Well, we don't, there's all sorts of definitions, but in Luke 6, verse 40, it says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So if you ask me, there's, there's your um, definition of discipleship. It is to be like your teacher, your master. My master is Jesus. Hopefully your master is Jesus. So if you want to be a disciple, you want to be like your master, Jesus. So when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you because the Holy Spirit now wants to do something with you. You know what he wants you to do? He wants you to be like your master. And so he wants you to conform to the image of God's son. He wants you to be like him. So when I look at this and I, I try to think to myself, what is the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in a disciple? It's to make him Christ-like. And how does the Holy Spirit's role do that? He teaches you. I want you to go back here to John chapter um, 14. But this time, once you look at verse 25, 
Well, verse 26, actually. But when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth, remember it said that earlier in John 14, spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit is going to be a witness of who Jesus is, okay? And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now go down here to verse uh, 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment, of sin, because they do not believe in me, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. So what is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does? He's going to guide you, right, in all truth, and he's going to do what? Teach you. He's going to teach you. He is going to guide you into all truth. He's not going to speak on his own authority. And whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell these things to come. He will glorify me. He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father are mine. Therefore, I said to you, he will take of mine and declare it to you. I love that. What is it the Holy Spirit is going to do? He's, he's going to teach you. He's going to teach you all things. He, he's going to bring to remembrance things that, uh, that Jesus has said. He's going to testify of him. He's going to lead and guide you. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life? In the way of, he, He's going to teach you. How does he teach you? I would say through the word of God. I would say through the word of God. Can, can I exhort you to do something every time you sit down? to read the word of God, that you would pray this prayer. Lord, I ask that through the Holy Spirit that you'd open my eyes and that you would teach me from your word. And you know what God is going to do? He's going to do that. He's going to do that. The Holy Spirit is there to teach you. He's to teach you. We also know that part of that teaching, this is part of the sanctification. You know, like I had said earlier, that the Holy Spirit is there to sanctify you, to set you apart is what that word sanctification means. Well, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth sanctification by the spirit in first peter 1 12 says the same thing the elect according to the foreknowledge of god the father in sanctification of the spirit for obedience of the sprinkling of the blood of jesus christ grace to you and peace be multiplied jesus said sanctify them by your truth your word is truth he does that through the holy spirit he wants to sanctify us he wants to set us apart and can i tell you something to be set apart to, for God means you have to be separate from other things. God's word tells us that um, uh, in Ephesians, he tells us endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The word unity there means one. And in order to be one with someone, it means you have to separate from others. Think about that for a second. In James 4, 5, it says, or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy. Yearns jealousy. Jesus really wants 
you to become his all in all. He wants you, he wants myself to look upon him and just say, it's all about you, Lord. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to walk the way you want me to walk. I want to be separate from the world. And he's jealous for us. And it's a godly jealousy. He wants to just be with us. Now think about this for a moment. If you're married here and you said yes to your spouse, God's word says, and you're to leave your father father and mother and you're to cleave to your wife and you're to become one with her. The way I become one with my wife is by saying no to other women. If you don't say no to other women, you have not unified with her. You still remain separate from her in many areas because you have other women. How well is that relationship going to go? Not well at all. There are some of us, well, I can take that back. All of us, to a degree, have not truly separated ourselves from the world. But Jesus is wooing us. He says, I want you to be separate. I want you to unify with me. I want you to be separate for me. And understand, again, to unify means you separate from others. Division means that there are two visions. That's why there's division. And so... Can two walk together unless they agree? The answer is no. If God's calling you this way, this is the way we're supposed to walk, Dave, over here. And I'm going that way. Are we walking together? No. Why aren't we walking together? Because apparently we don't agree. And what that really means is I'm not agreeing with God. And really to be unified with God, I need to agree with God and walk and go where the leading guy into the spirit is telling me to go. And that is towards him and away from the world. Away from the world. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians 6. I saw this for the first time like about seven or eight years ago. In verse 11, Paul's talking to the Corinthians and he says this. He says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. You should have that underlined. Do you realize what hinders you and what God has called you to do? Do you realize what restricts you from all that God wants from you is your own affections? I'm the only one that can hinder what God wants to do in my life. I'm the only one. And what hinders that? My affections. It could be sports, it could be recreation, it could be all sorts of different things. It could be business, it could be your ambition, it could be all sorts, you can put anything you want in there. And and God wants to do this with you, but you're hindering him because you have something above your love for him. There's something in your life, there's an affection there, and that's what restricts you. And he goes on and he says, now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion is light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what part of a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I dwell in them, I walk among them, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, sanctified. Be sanctified, says the Lord. 
And do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There's a sanctification, there's a separation that the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. And he's the one that's going to point out to you. And here's something. I'm really encouraging you to pray this. And some of you going, I don't need to pray. I already know what it is. I already know what that, that affection is. I already know what that kind of idol, that thing that pulls my flesh, I already know what it is. Okay. Some of you might be going, I really don't know what it is. Okay, then pray and say, Lord, I ask through your Holy Spirit that you would show me those affections that are interfering with you being able to use me in the way that you want to use me, to be that light for that to be overflowing. I promise you, he will show you what it is. I promise you. And if you say, I I did that and I still don't know, you're lying. You're lying. God will show you. And if you really don't know, then ask your wife. I guarantee you. It's it's interesting to me how often the, the voice of the Holy Spirit sounds like my wife, Mindy. But when I'm really listening to her voice, when she has a concern, I know it's from the Lord. And I know the Lord uses that. If you're not married, just ask a dear friend that is a believer, a true strong believer. Ask them. I'm sure they'll be able to point it out. I'm sure they'll be able to point it out. So I want I, I, I want us to understand that, okay? I want us to understand that. Now, does the Holy Spirit convict us of sin? You, you guys are leery. You're, you're going, it's a trick question. I can tell it's a trick question. Does the Holy Spirit convict us of sin? Okay. Yes, he does. But I want you to find out where it says that. Say it out loud. Okay, John 16. Let's go to it. John 16. Don't get nervous on me here. I'm going to take you in a direction you're not going to like, but then uh, it's going to be all good. And I'm I'm going to give you an example of a leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit in my life. Okay? So here it says... In verse 8, and when he has come, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Who's the Holy Spirit convicting there? The world. So the reason why I bring this up, hang in there. Okay, don't let me wig you out. I'm not wigging you out. I just want to let you know what the Holy Spirit did in, in, in my life. Okay, there, there is a goofy uh, um, doctrine out there. Okay, a heretical doctrine that says that you don't need to confess your sins anymore because God has taken it all on the cross and that he, he does not send the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin, to feel shame and things like that, that we should be dwelling more in righteousness and what we have on the other side of eternity and how we're already saved and we should be walking like uh, we're already righteous and things like that. It's a hyper grace movement is what it is. And so... This came to my attention, and as I'm talking to this individual, um, I just happened to mention, and well, and the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of sin. He says, well, where does it say that? And I went to here. And, and he kind of goes, okay, does it say that he convicts us as believers of sin, or is he saying he convicts the world? And I said, okay, in context here, it's the world. Well, where else does it say it? And I said, you know what? I will, I'll meet you back because I know it does, and I, I need to think this through. Because at that moment, I couldn't 
understand where I could go from there to show that the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts me of sin. So what I did is I prayed. Isn't that novel? I prayed and I said, Lord, I know this is a red flag that this is not true, that you convict us of sin. And I know what it says here is speaking of the world and specifically that sin. So where else does it say it? I just sense like the Lord was just saying to my spirit, I want you to go on Blue Letter Bible. I want you to look up what the word convict means. And it is the same word that is reprove or rebuke. And what I love about Blue Letter Bible is that it will show you where that word is used in other scriptures. And as I began to read some of the other scriptures, yeah, I knew it, but I didn't know it. And so it refined me, but I prayed and it was a spirit that led me there. It's a spirit that led me there. So when it says convict there in John 16, 9, I'm about to sneeze here. Hold on. All right. Have you sneezed yet in the sermon? You have? I, I have not done that yet. And I've come close like about a billion times. So it's going to happen tomorrow now. I know that for a fact now. Um, but in 2 Timothy 3.16, all of a sudden I start looking at all these words that now mean rebuke or reprove. It's the same word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof. The word reproof there, same word as conviction. The word of God is for conviction, is what it is. And that the man of God may be complete. So who's he talking to? Believers. He's talking about believers. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. The, the, the word rebuke there, the word convict is in glecos, and it means uh, proof, conviction, evidence of reproof. That's what it means there. That, will, that is what we have there. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged, from, discouraged when you are rebuked. The word there is convict. Same word. That you're convicted by him. The Lord rebukes. The Lord convicts. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, they're one. So if the Lord convicts you, the Holy Spirit is convicting you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Guess what? The Holy Spirit's going to be inside you. And he's going to bring to remembrance things that I have said. Well, you know what Jesus said in Revelation 3.19? As many as I love, I rebuke. Convict. Same word. I rebuke. I convict. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is because, again, I have the Holy Spirit. And I want to be able to go, okay, I, I thought I had an answer for that. I, I thought that was the answer. Okay, I can see in context that speaking of the world. But my goodness, why would I confess my sins? Why would I need to ask forgiveness if there isn't some sort of conviction? And that word conviction, when you look up, it, it speaks of uh, feeling shame and guilt. And, and, and the Holy Spirit does that. The Lord does that. His word does that. And the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance the word of God. And so you can see now that as you pray, okay, Lord, through your spirit, give me wisdom. Lead and guide me here. This is how God led and guide me, guided me so I could see, yes, this is now what I can bring to this person. To be able to show that this is a complete fallacy, completely in error. But it's something that took place about four or five weeks ago and. And, uh, and I was just looking, and I go, that, that's exactly what the, the Spirit does. We don't have time here um, tonight, but the Holy Spirit also enlightens us 
If you read 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16, you realize that, there, uh, that, that, that the things of the Lord, the people of the world aren't going to get. They're not going to understand. Why? Because they don't have the spirit in them. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But we have the Holy Spirit, so we're enlightened. We have a greater understanding, don't we? Don't we have a greater understanding of the world, why there's evil in the world, all sorts of things that happen? We have a greater understanding because the Holy Spirit enlightens us. He lets us know the things of God is what he does. The Holy Spirit equips us for service. This is the one that I'm talking about here of being empowered with the Holy Spirit for service. If you read in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, all the way through 11, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And it'll go on and it'll discuss all the the gifts of the Spirit. Who gives it? The Spirit does. For the profit of all. And so the Spirit is there to equip us for service. You shouldn't be working in Sunday school without being equipped. Without praying first, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit, that you didn't fill me right now so I can be used here in Sunday school. To be able to teach these kids, let them know about Jesus. You know, as before I'm a greeter, before I'm an usher, that people would see Jesus in me. All those kind of things. He's the one that's going to empower you to do that. You can't do it on your own, or it is definitely in the flesh. The Spirit, as we already read in John, He's going to lead and guide you. It also says in Romans 8, 14, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And there's two other things that I want to mention here before we end. You have complete control of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's one of the reasons why you can uh, quench the Spirit, and it's one of the reasons why you can grieve the Spirit. And they're two different things. And I would submit to you that the quenching of the Spirit, the word quench here means to extinguish, to go out. This actually speaks of how the, the Spirit of God leads and guides. Okay? This is God, this, this is um, a God through His Spirit leading and guiding, and you saying, No. Hey, I want you to get more involved in church. I want you to volunteer for the, No. Oof. Just extinguish the Spirit. You just put it out. Hey, I want you to be a light and a witness. No. No, no, I'm not about to say anything. Now's a good time for you. No, I'm not, I'm not saying anything. You've extinguished the Spirit. You've quenched the Spirit. And you need to ask forgiveness for that. You need to repent of that. The word grieve, that you could, re- that you could grieve the Holy Spirit. That's in Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve there means to make sad. You can sadden God. He grieves over the fact that you are grieving the Spirit. How do you grieve the Spirit? How do you make sin? I would suggest to you because there's sin in your life. And there's unrepentive sin. And you continue to sin. And you continue to have this sin in your life. And you're grieving the Lord. And the Lord is patient and he's merciful. And he wants you to come to the place where you ask forgiveness. And you ask for the power of God to give you the strength to overcome the sin. And give you the wisdom of how to overcome that. And I would submit to you the way you overcome it for one. Is that you have the wisdom to be able to talk to a couple other brothers. And be able to have them make you accountable. Or to your spouse. And if you continue to grieve the Holy Spirit. Then that's when the Lord will probably chastise you. 
because he chastises those that he loves and he loves his sons and daughters. This experience of walking in the spirit, of being able to see the Holy Spirit use you, overflowing, and it's ministering and touching people. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask.